Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm here with my colleagues, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Murison Bowie. Hello, Barney. Jasper, Hello. it's great to have you back. Yes, filling the, the, the hot seat. You're, the hot uh, seat. you're an old favourite around these parts. Delighted to have you back. The fact that you're also the producer of the Rocks Back Pages podcast <laughs> is, is sort of neither here nor there. It's, it's, it's lovely to have you sitting to my right. And we are going to be talking as usual about everything's new on rocks back pages this coming week including the 50th anniversary of the woodstock festival some pieces by the american writer mark anthony neal and the week's audio interview with shirley collins the great british folk singer but we're going to start aren't we chaps yeah. with just a discussion about woodstock we learned yesterday that Woodstock 50 has finally been cancelled. <laughs> oh no! Threatening to be cancelled for sort of weeks or months. It's it's now officially cancelled. There will be no 50th anniversary. Thank God for that. <laughs> I'm bitterly disappointed. You are, are you? you know, the, the first one holds such fond memories for me. That I really wish I could. You know, I didn't time travelling again, <laughs> So it's the sort of daddy of all rock festivals, isn't it? It is almost exactly 50 years ago, upstate New York in the Catskill Mountains. Michael Lang and his cohorts put on this festival that turned into an almost apocalyptic situation, given that they were really not expecting half a million strong. If it was half a million strong, somewhere between 350,000, 500,000, long-haired folks yes. showed up yes. for a weekend of mud and mayhem yep. and some extraordinary music, not all of it. Um, uh, you uh, were there, of course. Of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> At the age of 13. I mean, they were also smart enough to get a film crew who were actually capable of shooting it and actually ended up shooting it really well. Including one Martin Scorsese. Including one Martin Scorsese. And the consequence of that is that, yes, the festival in and of itself had a sort of immediate cultural importance, there's no doubt, but it's really the presence of the film which gave Mm -hmm. it legs. Great film, I think. I think it's terrific. I mean, I've seen it two or three times over the years, and I had to write about whenever the last anniversary was. And I really was struck by how good it was. Yeah, yeah, no. And the selection of the bands to feature, I think, is pretty much spot on as well. There is an argument that certain bands, well, obviously Crosby, Stills and Nash, as they were then, but Sly and the Family Stone, who had already had pop hits, but the film was what really sort of blew them up into the sort of stratosphere in many ways. I think Sly's performance is possibly the highlight of the entire thing. It's a great film. I'm glad I wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> well, funny you should mention that because the two pieces that we've selected, the contemporary yeah, pieces, yeah. one of them by Danny Goldberg for Billboard, and Danny later became you know Nirvana's manager and so right. forth. I suspect Danny was probably you know backstage, you know in, in, a, in a nice comfortable tent yes. with the, the man managers and groupies so his report for billboard doesn't convey really just what a sort of on the one hand kind of nightmare it was for so many the other the other piece and i think you brought miller francis jr on board from the great speckled bird i mean this is an extraordinary it's just after danny's and it really is like i mean anyone really wants to know what it was like being a punter Although he was there as a writer, essentially experienced it as a punter. No, I, I, ab- absolutely. I mean, first of all, I mean, I found online there's a big collection of the great speckled birds, and I started going going through them, and this name kept cropping up. Miller Francis is their sort of main rock writer around sort of 69, 70. And that was a magazine that... It is an Atlanta underground paper. I very first heard about it when I first went to Chicago by myself to do the ALA conference. And this woman who ran a Northwest consortium sat down and said, this is great. Have you seen the Great Speckled Bird? And I'd never even heard of the Great Speckled Bird. So I found this online, found his stuff, did a search online, found him, Mm -hmm. and he willingly joined, Mm -hmm. as did Gene Guerrero, another very interesting writer. And I was going through his, his stuff on, on the site, and this Woodstock piece just leapt out. It was really extraordinary. You know, you really get a sense of what it was like to kind of like try and put your tent up, 
dealing with the rain, not really being able to get close to the stage because you're in a huge audience. It's it's really vibrant. It's a brilliantly written piece. It is. Absolutely, is yeah. Very visceral. Gives you, as you're saying, a sense of being there Absolutely. on every level. And in great... fact, explains why they left early because yeah. they couldn't cope anymore. Even though it was musically had, had got to a point where it was great, they just couldn't cope with the mud. They'd run out of food, they'd run out of money. Yes. Yeah. And they couldn't face the drive back if they stayed any longer. Yeah, no. I, I, so that is the audience experience, exactly as I'm saying. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's a terrific piece. There's a great passage. I mean, some of it's really poetic, and this caught my eye. The resurgence of the pagan primeval urges, a bacchanalian but different this time, post-literate electric turned on nakedness and soul rhythms in the nation of the moonshot. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> <laughs> Gon- gonzo. But, but actually, most of it is much more prosaic than that. Yes. It really is about, my God, the rain. I mean, it's fascinating because to, to read this piece again, to realise that it was, it was already raining heavily on Friday night. Yep. Then it absolutely poured down <laughs> on Saturday afternoon. I mean, just he, he so he sort of details that, and you think, my God, it must have been really, really hard work, yeah. and sort of like ten portaloos for sort of three hundred thousand. Yeah. He has this yeah. recurring theme of surviving the festival yes. being the sort of primary abs- need. Absolutely, for, I mean, for its punters. I'm not a real festival person, but I did a couple of festivals. Because my niece was playing, and I was basically there as her fat totem, sort of, you know, bag carrier. But the first one, when the sun shone, was a perfectly pleasant experience. The second one, when it, it absolutely lashed down. And even though it's a much better organised thing than Woodstock, and much smaller scale in terms of the size of the audience, it just became instantly miserable. Mm. You either sat in your tent, studying the walls of it, <laughs> or you went out and just got covered in mud within minutes, you know. And and we ended up actually camping right up on a hill, way away from where everything was happening, and just basically not visiting the, the festival site at all. No. So, yeah, anyway, Miller's piece, I think, is one of the great bits of writing we've actually gone on the site about yeah. an event like that. It's maybe. terrific. I mean, you know, let, let's just talk briefly about what Woodstock means in terms of the, sort of the history of, of popular culture and rock music. It is, it's almost a complete cliche now, isn't it? Really? It's quite hard even to, mm-hmm. to discuss Woodstock without, without just all the usual kind of tropes or tropes, or however you want to pronounce that <laughs> word. But, but I think, it, you know... It, when you see the film, or you read a piece mm-hmm. like, the, like this Miller Francis piece, you sort of go back in time before all the sort of received mm. historical wisdom, yeah. and you are reminded what an extraordinary thing it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've read quotes the effect in, in various places where nobody knew there were even that many hippies in the whole of America <laughs> and it was like they had all descended yeah, yeah. like apocalyptic refugees in, in, in this one place uh, and, and it was completely out of control and sort of terrifying but at the same time rather magnificent yes I, I think that's true I mean also you know, we talk about the hippies, but the man who the hippies yeah. were very down on actually bailed the festival out. Yeah, they flew in water, they flew in all kinds of stuff. You know, the man, the man did the right thing. Yeah, and Danny Goldberg says the often omnipresent "we they" paranoia, which usually divides hippies from straights, disappeared here because there was a, a, a sense of emergency, yeah. and actually, even the cops sort of got into into the spirit of it. I mean, the thing is that, that, that sort of some people regard Woodstock as like the, the acme of the rock and roll, the hippie generation. Woodstock occurred, what, three months before Altamont? Yeah. Around the time of the Manson murders? Just, just around that time you as know. well, I know. Um, so in a sense... That just after. Just, that, just after the Manson, the Manson killings. killings. So, you know, you could say actually all of these were a series of full stops on the end of something rather than the beginning of something. What it did do is a lot of other people saw it and thought, right, we can do this ourselves. So there was a rash of big festivals in America through 69 and through 1970, and then they sort of basically stopped. Mm. But there was a whole stretch of them, Jimi Hendrix... And some before, because then Miller Francis alludes to the Atlanta Festival, which had happened before, and they'd experienced that, but... But nothing like this. Yes. I mean, at various points, he says, well, we, we really thought about mm, turning yeah. around because it was another 15 miles. And, I mean, it, it, they could see it was complete 
case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Jasper, for, for, for someone of your generation, what does Woodstock mean? How did you, what did you grow up with in your mind when, when you, or didn't this you? idea of Woodstock? <laughs> yeah, I, I did think you have a, it's sort of this myth almost of, yeah. Yeah, of the festival to end all festivals yeah. in yeah. a way. What you're saying about it sort of marking the end of mm-hmm. the hippie period is something that I've only clocked as a result of conversations with you. It seemed in my mind to be more like this great culmination right. that, that had echoing shockwaves, whatever, yes. across time but I don't know to what extent that's oh, true you know, I mean obviously the film and it's, it has developed this legendary status but yeah. right after it happened what was the f- well I mean I, I think right after it happened it was it, it was heavily reported because of the sheer size I don't think it, it took a while for it to, to develop its mythological resonance mm. you know that wasn't an instant instant thing it was just it was an extraordinary event but it had no context other than it had just occurred. Mm. You know, it had taken place. I, the other thing is, it's interesting is, is that the promoters really push the boat out in terms of booking bands. That just band for band it is possibly one of the best lineups ever assembled. Yeah, you know, really quite extraordinary. Some of whom had a nightmare. The Grateful Dead notoriously played during the rainstorm and started getting electric shocks, and also that radio traffic broadcast was coming through their amplifiers. Mm. And Jerry Garcia apparently walked off at the end and just kind of grinned and said, well, there's how you blow the biggest gig of your life, you know. <laughs> but, as I said, Sly and the Family Stone are extraordinary. Jimi Hendrix closing the show. Now, the whole thing had overrun, so he ends up going on stage at about 10 in the morning of the... In fact, the morning that the show's... The Monday morning? The Monday morning. And with a scrappy version of a band... Which is his the Gypsy Sun and Rain. Gypsy Sun and Rain. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The only real player in terms of competence. Well, the two Billy Cox is a decent bass player, and Mitch Mitchell, of course, was on drums. Mitch reports going up to Jimmy's Woodstock retreat and meeting these play people, realizing this is going to be a fiasco because you know they just literally didn't rehearse anything; they just jammed hopelessly. But the the irony of that is is that possibly because the band was so poor. Jimmy really pulls the stops out, and it is absolutely one of his great performances. And, of course, it culminates in that version of the Star Spangled Banner. You know, at the time, we all assumed he had just done it for that show. He had been playing the Star Spangled he Banner for, for a quite he had, a while. Absolutely. Yeah. That's really important to remember. But that version yeah. is extraordinary. Yeah. And instantly, documentary makers will put it over... Yeah. F4 Phantoms dropping napalm on the Ho Chi Minh yeah. Trail and so on and so forth. It, 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 it's the American national anthem, but it's the amount of America at that moment in 1969, height of the Vietnam War and so mm. on and so forth. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so that performance gets that, which is just extraordinary. And, and in in front of only an estimated crowd at that point, about 40,000. That's right. Most people have gone, including Miller Francis. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Doesn't get a mention because he'd, yeah. he'd left. You know, yeah. My brother went to the Isle of Wight when Jimmy played the Isle of Wight and he left before Jimmy as well. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and for the same reasons. Well, as, you know, we've got to get out of this madness. I'm, I might have left as well, you know, yeah, that's yeah, the awful yeah. truth, but of course you'd sorely regret having missed that Star Spangled Banner, oh. wouldn't you? But, I mean, just it's interesting what, what you say about you know, being, being your age and what Woodstock means. I think one of the things that that festival did was it, it made the music business realise how huge yeah. this was yeah. and how you could sort of sell the counterculture. And I don't think, in a sense... You know, you could argue that kind of rock, rock and roll never really recovered from it. And every festival after that, starting with Altamont yeah. in a kind of horrible yeah. way, was a sort of pale echo. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, the next, well, there was a very interesting, you'll know about Watkins Glen. So yes. in 1973, The Grateful Dead, The Band, and The Allman Brothers, yeah. just three acts yes. as opposed to Woodstock's, I don't know, 35 acts. Sure. Man, it, that was the biggest festival of all time. Yeah. 600, maybe not including, there might have been one in Brazil, but 600,000, right. all sign upstate New yeah, York, yeah, although yeah. a lot further and better uh, weather. Much, west. Much better weather. And better weather. <laughs> 600,000 people turned up to see three bands. Yes. You know. Yeah. Um, Nowadays, so you, festivals have hundreds and hundreds of bands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 
and our, what we how we experience festivals now i mean festivals are just part and parcel of of the entertainment industry For i mean sure. you can sit at home and literally watch the whole of yeah. glastonbury on your tv i, I mean i think festivals inherently much more sanitized experience and sanitized yes. in the most literal sense yes, yes. there are enough loons, <laughs> there are enough loons. Just, not, not that that makes them pleasant no. places and vegan be. rats no that, that's right and probably better sound systems i don't know what the sound system like at woodstock but it probably intermittently good yeah I but think. but i'd imagine only good for like a relatively small number yes. of people quite near the stage yes. and further back it would have been sort of a very distant ramble but I mean, you know, so the, the, the very first festival I ever went to was the 1975 Stonehenge Free Festival, which was a deeply unpleasant experience. <laughs> um, uh, only notable for seeing a certain Joe Strummer with his band of 101ers, who were remarkable because the only band that played songs which were about two and a half, three minutes long, while everyone else seemed to sprawl on and on and on. Put me off festivals for forever. Forever, really. You know, yeah, I, yeah. I, and until I went to the two festivals I was talking about. Yeah. I hadn't, hadn't been, been. For, for that. Talking of subsequent festivals, the third piece in our Woodstock feature is by Andrew Muller for Vox, and it is his account of attending the 1994. Yes. That's what the 25th anniversary right. festival which was not at Max Yazga's farm mm-hmm. or whatever it was called but it was actually much nearer the town of Woodstock somewhere between Woodstock and Saugerties so so Saugerties is really right. where it was held and if the original festival was a chaotic mud bath this <laughs> put it in the shade really I mean it, it rained constantly yeah. to the point where it, it made everything absolutely impossible do you know anything Jasper about that festival the rain being the only real continuity between original Woodstock and yeah. that Woodstock right? I mean, yeah although, in, although ironically the whole reason ultimately why Michael Lang put on the original festivals because of Bob Dylan who didn't play there but he did get Dylan so I read this for piece, 94 the 94 piece I, it's very very funny piece it is hilarious yeah. it's just scathing yes. about so many of the acts that play and so much of the organisation just not having anything of the atmosphere of the vibrancy and yeah. excitement of the original Woodstock yes I mean you know, he talks at some length about the sheer mediocrity of most of the music but also he sort of gives you a sense of sort of just how oafish this audience was now I don't know if this is the one but I believe it was where I think a woman was raped yeah. where the audience was very frat boyish yeah. you know lots a lot of, of muscly boys with baseball caps yeah. on backwards yeah. fighting in the muddy mosh pit yeah very it, testosterone it, 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 sound, it sounded ghastly it was the first attempt to recreate the original Woodstock wasn't it I believe it was the very first new Woodstock they did and they have subsequently tried to sort of like they promoted a few more I think I went to one in 1998 why it was 98 I don't know uh-huh. in, in, on the original site right. and that was one day and it was Pete Townsend Joni Mitchell and Lou Reed it was it was a, it was a, a pretty, strange pretty curious called The Day in the Garden <laughs> somehow Lou Reed and The Garden don't t- these things don't connect what Lou there. Reed was doing there I mean also other people included Joey Ramone I remember being dragged into this panel to talk about about what Woodstock meant with Richie Havens who started yes. the original festival yes. on my left and Joey Ramone to his left I mean <laughs> and they were like surely Joey Ramone the runs were, were, were meant to be the opposite the every it was a strange thing but yeah this, this uh, Muller's account is, is very funny yeah. isn't it and you, you're just grateful that you weren't there and at the end he goes um, it didn't mean anything of course just like Reading Phoenix and Glastonbury don't mm. mean anything it wasn't a cross-cultural coming together it wasn't a watershed of positivity for Generation X it was a bunch of bands playing in a paddock <laughs> <laughs> and I sort of feel that a little bit about most fest I mean like ugh, Reading please yes. but I mean even Glastonbury really has yeah. just become a it's, bunch of it's funny though I mean Reading is People my generation is like for people that grow up in the Oxfordshire area. It's a rite of passage. It's a rite of passage. Everybody goes yeah, yeah. to Reading yeah, yeah. around the age of 15, 16. That's that. You just go to Reading. Yeah. That's what you do. <laughs> and I actually had a great time at Reading yeah, when I was sure. sixteen. You know, it was it was the experience of seeing that much live music isn't one that you get to have unless you know you're living in a big city yeah. where there's music on all the time and you have a budget to go see it. Whereas mm. when you're sixteen, you don't have that. So getting to go and just hang out in a field in a paddock whatever it, yeah, there's, yeah. there's something freeing about that sure. regardless of the actual event and its commerciality and its yeah. vegan wraps and its whatever 
I like festivals. I think they're I think they're fun. You know, a I lot of people do. A mm. lot of people do. I mean, you're, you're young. You're yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're allowed. I mean, that has really since sort of Glastonbury sort of reestablished itself in the sort of late eighties. Yeah, there's been a massive growth of. Of up to the point where they went too far and about two mm. years ago, three years ago a bunch of people went bankrupt who had been putting on festivals. I but think the ultimate combination of that was that fire the festival. Fire festival. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but, um, the bros of uh, festivals. Uh, 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 and Glastonbury tries to sort of bolt on a bit of sort of cultural resonance and responsibility and political credibility. Eco-consciousness. Which, and frankly, so you know what? You know, it's bullshit. Let's, let's be honest, you know. <laughs> but, you know, anyway, but, you know, for you youngsters... <laughs> yeah. M- Muller does write about the few sort of high points of the festival. He he loves Nine Inch Nails, yeah. who he he's, describes as being as wretched as most of the crowd, plastered in mud after a pre-show punch-up, a welcome <laughs> bolt of savagery, a torrent of cleansing venom. He also compliments... Trent Reznor for being the only artist to address the crowd as miserable muddy fuckheads but <laughs> 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 he also said that Bob Dylan is magnificent tonight I, mean, I don't know whether he was or not but in a sense it was a sort of fitting closure sure. to the festival sure. I've heard Dylan was good he played some of the songs that he had written in Woodstock mm-hmm. in the late 60s so there was there was some kind of closure anyway I mean that's our song Woodstock. Yeah. Um, if you've never three seen days, the film, three days, days yeah. yeah, and of course now there's now there's all sorts of additional footage that yes. you can get kind of ten DVD box sets and see all the stuff that that wasn't featured in the film. But it, I think the original film, especially the split screen use of yes. split screen, yeah, yeah. is actually pretty remarkable. Michael Wadley, right, yes. was the director. Yes. Scorsese was one of the cameramen. It's a, an extraordinary film. Um, I, I watched it with my daughter, my very autistic daughter. And she was absolutely riveted. Was she? Yeah, and she typed because it's how she communicates. Yeah. She holds her hand and she types. And she, she said, "I thought the hippies were hilarious." Yeah. I said, "Who did you like music?" She said, "Jimi Hendrix and Sly and the Family Stone." Yeah. Boom. You yes. Know, and that's her. Thumbs up to my daughter. Sly is absolutely <laughs> thrilling, isn't he? It's I mean, it's great. the middle of the night because everything's gotten so late. Yeah. Three in the morning. And he's got all these hippies, you know. He, ro- uh, he rocks the joint. He absolutely yeah. tears the roof off the, the, ho- the whole hillside yeah. is just sort of heaving yes. with, with, with people bacchanalian reverence. People holding candles. It's fabulous. And, you know. it's amazing. Uh, and I want to take you higher. Yeah, and he and, did. And that's before his band started to disintegrate under the amount of cocaine they were consuming. Like. So it's probably the family stone at their, their, best. M- their best and most united as, yeah. a, as, a, yeah. as, a, you know, as a group of musicians. Yeah. He's electrified. He's mm. absolutely that's quite a good segue for us to go into the featured writer of the week three pieces about soul music about R&B Mark Anthony Neal we don't have a lot by him he's a true rockademic in the sense that he's a professor of black popular culture at Duke University he's also written books including Soul Babies and Songs in the Key of Black Life and his digital home is New Black Man in Exile so there's three pieces one of which actually is about a white guy that we've talked about before Lewis Taylor who I'm a massive fan of. And this is a really interesting piece by a black writer about a white, quote-unquote, soul enigma. And it's a really interesting examination of... Because Lewis Taylor's a bit of an iconoclast character in that scene, because he never really wanted that label. And Mark Anthony Neal examines that history and talks to him about it, and it's it's an interesting piece. Uh, You've had a kind of run-in with Lewis Taylor, didn't you? Because uh, you actually written a very complimentary review, and he wanted you... It taken down off some website or yeah he is he's a contrary fellow and <laughs> rereading this piece by Mark Antony really reminded me of that because his first experiences 
Island Records say, we found the new Al Green. And uh, as he says to uh, Mark Anthony, they hadn't even met me yet. <laughs> so so it, it, it's very interesting to read about how he resented and resisted this kind mm. of blue-eyed soul yep. label that was put on him. I remember first hearing him when I was working at Mojo. I think Jim Irvin had the first album, just called Lewis Taylor. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't make up my mind straight away. I thought, okay, this guy's just sort of channeling Marvin Gaye, yeah, really. Yeah. And is he a phony? So the jury was out. As with each successive album, and then including this, I thought, utterly brilliant, like, non-R&B album they put out called The Lost Album, I thought, this guy's a fucking genius. Mm-hmm. I really do, and I still think that the, the best things he's done are magnificent he's an extraordinary singer arranger he layers his own vocals he sort of plays half the instruments but he's very he really is like that Bartleby figure he, he's like I would prefer not to he, any, any praise you give him he sort of resents it so I wrote this long piece about the lost album and, and I think we put it on Rock's Back Pages mm-hmm. and he emailed me out of the blue and said please take that down <laughs> And I'm like, well, A, it's a sort of absolute hymn of praise to you. And B, however much I love your music and admire you, uh, you don't get to tell me to take <laughs> this down from our own website. So <coughs> fuck off, as you would say. You know, I mean, so that that was where it got to. And yeah. since then, not a word out of this guy. He's pretty much just disappeared. Yeah, off the map completely. He plays occasionally with... I mean, he used to play in the Edgar no, Broughton band that, of all no, things. No, that, that's right. So weird. Well, one other thing is he's actually an extremely skilled guitar player. Amazing guitar player. And I think he's local to Edgar Brock. I think it's it's almost a geographical thing. I think that he lives close and yeah. they just became friends. Yeah. And so, yeah, he does. He t- turns up playing with the Edgar Brockman, who I used to see playing free concerts in the park in, like, 1969, with the whole so, audience yeah. chanting, Out, Demons, Out. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, how that, how you leave this almost takes us back to Lewis to Wo- Taylor? almost takes us back to Woodstock, curiously. <laughs> but, no, I mean, he, he, he is an extraordinary... So person. Neil's piece is interesting in that mm. he's kind of... Um, he, he notes that, like, everyone from sort of David Bowie to D'Angelo has, has made admiring noises about Lewis. He's trying to trying to work out why Lewis hasn't broken in in the US and he says that D'Angelo has sort of really wants to work Mm. with him or really wanted to work with him and again you know there's sort of there's there's some kind of self sabotaging thing going on there because they they he never met D'Angelo it never happened well well, you know yes and no but also the it's the difficulty for white musicians who are doing overtly R&B is they won't get played by black radio no Equally, they may not play the white radio for sounding too much like soul music. Yeah. It's, it's been a whole, a lot of English blue-eyed soul people have fallen into at various stages, you know, with the rigid stratification of American radio into sort yeah. of subgenres and so on and so forth. But, yes, you're right. I mean, it's Lewis Taylor. He certainly fucked it up, you know. So. <laughs> I think his records, you know, in, in 20, 30 years, I don't think people will look back and realise yeah. how great those records were and how, in a sense, genre-defying mm-hmm. they yeah. were. It's not uh, just uh, white soul. You know, he 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 may have, he may have stopped simply because he realised he hadn't got anything left to say. And yeah. actually, I, I wish I wish more artists would do that. <laughs> you know, yeah, because you know, rather than flogging a dead horse for another four or five. I do albums. think it would have been interesting to hear him work with someone like D'Angelo yeah, because maybe. his song craft and, and all of that. Well, he, yeah, he'd probably added middle eights to D'Angelo for a start. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that's another conversation. <laughs> the vibe piece what is, yeah. what, what, what's, what's the upshot of the vibe piece so do you want to say something about the vibe piece well I mean, there's another kind of quite academic exploratory piece but this time about the demise of vibe magazine yeah, which yeah. was a magazine set up by Quincy Jones in the early yeah. 90s an early investor yes that's uh, right or he was certainly involved in it yes he was and, and it explores black culture in America mm-hmm. and provides a mouthpiece for writing about black music at yep. a time when it's not getting the the coverage it should do and he kind of charts the rise of Vibe magazine yep. and then its demise in the early noughties when it doesn't have the, the credibility that it did when it started right. out and it starts to embody some of the commercialisation well, of there were the two, industry there were two major essentially hip hop 
I'm, that being the central music and so I'm even though it also covered R&B and everything else the source and vibe and there was a lot of enmity between the two papers yes and the source was frequently condemned as being a, some sort of sellout magazine and so on and so forth and it didn't survive either I believe no. But at one stage, the vibe was selling extraordinarily well, and it was a big, fat, glossy magazine. It was, it was really something... And it brought through a lot of very, very good African-American yeah, yeah. writers. And Mark Anthony mentions the new... What he calls the vibe generation of writers. Mm. He includes, like, Toure, yeah. who's a Rolling Stone writer, Kevin Powell, Michael Gonzalez, who we have well, on RDP. Yeah. But he, he notes also that, that, that they were blended with some of the older black writers who'd written for, say, The Village Voice. Yeah. So we think about the great Nelson George, for yes. example, Greg Ironman Tate, Barry Michael Cooper. So really, it was a it was a really important magazine. Yeah. Even if it was heavily about the advertising, you know, um, the opportunity was you know was to sell. Well, I mean, that's, to what, sell. that's what American yeah. magazines, particularly American magazines. Well, if you look at Rolling Stone from the same period, it's the same mass of yeah. you know upscale advertising. Yeah. But it was also that spoke to the fact that there was an emerging black middle class with money. Exactly. The constituency yeah. it, was, it was addressing. And it yeah. sort of mirrors the similar rise of like, MTV starting to yeah. play limited amounts of black music but then also your MTV rap. Yes, which actually, that, which actually was a precursor yeah. to Vibe magazine. Yeah. But it's sort of part of well, the exactly same story, yeah. isn't it? Mark Anthony Neal mentions um, two things. One, of course, is Vibe's role in the feud between the East Coast and the, right. the West Coast. That Vibe became part of the story. Did it? He quotes another writer to the effect that the magazine had at this point become an integral part of the very story it was supposed to be reporting on. And it was an East, it was East Coast based yes. vibe, of yep. course. But he also mentions just something that you know we were ver- very well aware of um, in the noughties, Mark, which was that the, the the threat posed to print magazines by what by free internet content. Yes. You know, suddenly yes. uh, magazines simply could not, they couldn't make money and you know, we remember all too well the sort of whole kind of free yes. epidemic of free content. Yes. Where yes. ultimately, writers who'd been paid a decent word rate were suddenly being asked to sort of blog for free yep. online. Yep. And, and we're still, in a sense, you well, know, we're still we're experiencing we're, we're still there. the I'm, aftermath I, 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 of that. I think what's, what's interesting is that some print magazines have got quite smart at actually identifying a very specific market who will be willing to pay for print, not to chuck all their content up online so it's freely available. And there have been some, some notable survivors and even some are doing pretty well, both in music and culture and politics and so on and so yeah. forth. You know, a magazine like The New Statesman, which would have probably gone under a few years back, is now actually making money and so on and so yes. forth. You know, so there are ways around this and often it's by really narrowing your focus yes so I suspect now if someone were to produce a, a new vibe in America now it could have some purchase but I, I think the key thing is that it would have to be have some form of authenticity yeah. and I think that's what the big magazines like Vibe and like the same thing happened to NME where yeah. it just they kind of panicked and started pandering more and more to commercial interest yes. because they were losing yeah. advertising revenue and so on yeah. and then once you start pandering to that commercial mm. side of it suddenly your audience are kind of like well what do you even represent anymore yeah. are you mm. just sort of this megaphone for the mainstream yes. I, I don't identify any longer with this magazine that should be part of my life and I think increasingly now we're seeing magazines try and form you know a fan base or a readership that a community I think yeah a community yeah, 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 that's right. and on that happy note England have taken another wicket Hurrah! Hurrah! Australia are now 35 for 3 who is the bowler? Wokes Chris Wong. Never heard of him. <laughs> <laughs> I had heard of Stuart Broad. That's very, very good. I've well yes. got yes. to point out to our listeners that, that well, whilst uh, certainly I regard Test Match Cricket as the greatest sport on earth, Barney has no time for cricket whatsoever. <laughs> and uh, Jasper's somewhere in between, I'd yeah, say. Yeah. 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 I like Test Cricket. So in, in terms of vibe, I think we could probably agree that all, if the wheel is not turning full circle, no. it's turning a little bit. Yeah. I think certainly what people are realising is that, you know... Uh, to use that old adage, if you if you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. Absolutely, and we've had a lot of rubbish writing yes. online. Yeah, some very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, but it, but if good writers can't 
afford to feed themselves they're they're, they're going to have to do something else right. and that's what's happened right. you know so um and then the last of the pieces is mainly about linda jones the great soul singer from new jersey it's called the redemptive soul bodies in pain the redemptive soul of linda jones now linda jones was someone i must have first heard around probably not long after she died she did this cataclysmic version of the the the, the famous um uh, Garnet Mims and the Enchanters song uh, For Your Precious Love which mm-hmm. has been covered by so many so many artists I think it's one of the great kind of hymns of soul music extraordinary song and she just turned it into this kind of agonising soul epic like mm-hmm. a kind of sermon and she does a little sermon in the middle of it and it is quite extraordinary as are a number of other songs that Linda Jones recorded she did some up-tempo sort of sort of northern soul type stuff but she was ultimately this balladeer who just went so far over the top that it kind of works because right. it's because it's it's just intense like nothing i've ever heard mm, she's got before. an amazing voice incredible voice and mark anthony Neal does really real justice to this there was a this was a violence that in large part was in was a response to that which her own body bore witness to so she had diabetes mm-hmm. and she was actually performing at the apollo theater the age of 28 in the week that she died and well worth checking out yeah, Linda I want Jones. to stress as well that all three of these Mark Anthony Neal pieces are very very well written yeah. research yeah. put together yeah. they're yeah. great academic writing actually about very thoroughly composed tracing whatever it's about mm. they're just very well, well put together great. yeah yeah if you like soul music at all I urge you to explore her she's on Spotify she's amazing Mark, what's the week's new audio interview? Yeah, well, this is really rather fabulous. It's uh, John Tobler interviewing uh, the great English folk singer Shirley Collins in May 91. He's there to, I assume, write sleeve notes for a re-release of her No Roses album. So initially they go through that album song by song, and then they talk about musicians and they broaden it all out. I mean, first of all is... That Shirley Collins comes over as a really delightful woman. I mean, one would she gives him supper at one point. I say, "Shall we take a break? Yes, let's have supper." You know, <laughs> yeah, um, she cooks him pasta. Uh, yes. um, I liked your pasta, Shirley. Thank uh, uh, you. Um, and she's been retired effectively for a number of years by this point. This album, No Roses, was a very different record for her. It mm. was putting her together with electric musicians mm. and and traditional musicians. So we were talking about, we listened to it yesterday, and it's a really, really good record. I mean, there are a lot of really fabulous things on it. But it it is kind of like a Legion Leaf period Fairport's album. It's very Legion uh, Leaf, uh, really. And and Richard Thompson's all over it, and so on and so forth. But But I mean, crucially, she she doesn't, I mean, she's a sort of very much straight-ahead sort of folk singer, and she talks about not changing how she sang yes yes despite yes. the fact that it was this kind of folk well, rock well it's very interesting she talks production she talks well we could have we could have a clip about the production where she talks about how the production evolved because john tober sort of says well you know it's a very it's a great sounding record and she said it just sort of happened yeah This was obviously thought of as a great production. We're going to do a an epic album here. No, it 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 was a bit like Betsy. It just grew, you know. Um, <laughs> it it, it did, we didn't set out with that intention. Mm. But as the songs got laid down, the sort of possibilities of what you could do with them became more and more apparent. And after a bit, um, um no, it, it seriously it did it just grew as it happened. Um, you couldn't plan this. Think, oh yes, on this track, you know, I'd rather like. But, but as it as it all started to happen, you know, the ideas sort of got a bit more and more outrageous in a way. And and uh, as I say, we sort of had carte blanche. And 
the whole thing just snowballed, really. I mean, nobody expected us to have 26 musicians on it, least of all. <laughs> us, you know, it's, uh, it, it's just that, that that's how it sort of finally turned out. She talks very fondly of a lot of musicians. She talks about... It was produced, co-produced, by her then-husband, Ashley Hutchins. And she's... Uh, she's some ambivalence. Yeah, because I mean, they've split up by the time this is... Long time, long, you know. Exactly. But also, like, there's one track where the Waterstons are on it, and she talks about how... It really was a Waterstones track, and she had nothing to do with it. And she, you, she, she more or less says she preferred it hadn't been on the, re- on the album. But... I just I found her charming, really interesting to listen to. She asks Tobler for a roll up every now and again, <laughs> and it's, he he likes cigarettes, starts coughing. But <laughs> yes, point. they talk about smoking. Yeah, they do know, quite funny. quite quite some. some, I, some. I, I really enjoyed it. I have to say, yeah. and I mean, just to put it in context, so she was really the kind of queen of of there's a folk revival here in the UK, yes. a revivalist folk, traditional mm. folk. Uh, she grew up in Sussex. She knew all about you know traditional songs well, the copper family grown all up of that yeah yes yeah, so, yeah. sister and they but, uh, but also, Dolly, exactly but Dolly Collins it was also the age of the Se- Cecil Sharp House and the whole English sort of folk revival exactly stuff there. she's very catty about Ewan McCall who she said you know I didn't like Ewan McCall who was a major power within that scene and a bit of a bully uh, and a bit of a bully and, in, and the implication is that it, he was telling her what sorts of songs yeah. she, she, she could um, sing and she says I felt like I could sing anything I wanted to I was you know, to be honest, I've never really listened to her much before. I'm not, folk music isn't my, my thing in particular. But we listened to the album yesterday, and I thought her voice was beautiful. Yes, it? it is. And it's really unaffected. There's no sort of folksy, folky, sort no. of twangy, whatevers, or, 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 or oldy Englishy pronunciations. She sings these songs as if they're contemporary songs. You, you know, exactly. Uh, uh, with this very clean voice, quite dry voice. And I think she sounds fantastic. And there's so many. She talks later on about m- modern folk and the terrible influence of people like the likes of Martin Carthy who, who'd established a way of singing folk which everyone subsequently seemed to copy. And she says they don't have their own voices. Mm. She's really adamant. Is that none of these... And the one person she likes is Billy Bragg. Yes, and I can, see exa- and I can see exactly why. Because yeah. Billy Bragg sounds like himself. And he was he was a folk singer yes. for his for his time absolutely you know which a lot of a lot of the sort of people influenced yeah, by yeah. Martin Carthy and others yeah. weren't mm. yeah she is an extraordinary singer I, I I don't I couldn't say that she moves me in the way that Sandy Denny moves no. me but actually the way her very sort of straight plaintive authentic voice mm. works with the Fairport style yeah. instrumentation arrangements yeah. on this record is is, is yeah. a real treat I, I mean, it's even to got hit. a touch of like the band's second album about yeah. places it's, it, 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 it's yeah. you know it's, it, it's a very controlled beautifully recorded old fashioned very dry sound there aren't yeah. any reverbs anywhere it's, 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 and it, it sounds like people in the room singing and playing songs mm. I think one of the really interesting things about the recording process she talks about mm. it, that there were lots and lots of people involved, but very organically, yeah, people yeah. just sort of dropped by yeah. the studio. And one one of the people that gets mentioned is briefly mentioned, Lol Coxhill, oh, yes. actually an improvised saxophonist. And That's this right. was his only ever folk recording. Yeah, yeah. He was very much in the free. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, he used to play a lot in Oxford because he worked with yeah. another Oxford saxophonist. Well, I, 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 I saw him, George pl- Hasler. I saw him playing with Kevin Ayers in the whole world in '69, uh, free concert in the park, maybe '70. And then three days later, I was walking down the King's Road, and he was busking down the King's Road. <laughs> so I went up to him and said, I saw you with Kevin there the whole world. It was great. And he was really sweet. And I was like... Yeah, I was, I was, and I was, here's ten shillings. I was, th- I was 13 or something, right. you know. I mean, <laughs> I've, I've seen him, because, you know, going to so that, yeah. that's the sort of concert right. I was going to growing up in Oxford, that yeah. sort of free okay. jazz scene. And my mum's actually designed an album cover that he was featured oh, on. Um, with with, a, with my first jazz piano teacher, Richard Lee Harris. They're on an album together with this other saxophonist, George Haslam. So he's a world. was very nice. Man, I love the fact that he's on this album. It's, it is remarkably unlikely. Yeah, along with Richard Thompson, yeah. Dave Massex is, is not the main drummer no. on it. But it's sort of like the great and the good of sort of yeah. folk yeah. rock. And, it's, and it? it was mostly recorded at Sound Techniques in Chelsea, which yes. is the legendary studio where 
um, Stormwood so, Studio, it, wasn't it? It, it, yes. exactly where where People, like, yeah. Nick Drake recorded yeah. and so on and so forth. You know, and it's a, it's a a really good studio, long gone obviously, but a really good studio, absolutely geared to recording acoustic instruments and not too loud electric instruments. You know, it wasn't a rock and roll studio sound techniques as such. And it, it, so much of what was recorded there, the focus was on this sort of territory. Mm. So it was the right place to go. The engineers would know exactly where to put the microphones, mm. which mm. makes the whole process of recording much quicker. Yeah. And it means that some does come in with their hurdy-gurdy. You can yeah. stick them behind a microphone. I like the way you talk about the hurdy-gurdy revival. That's right, that's right. And I love the sound of the yeah. record. Uh, I love the way she talks about some of the... So the as you said, the, she goes through all of the songs on the record and when she gets to Poor Murdered Woman the way she talks about it you know I love this song the pity of it she says and the dignity of it she talks so passionately about not not all the songs clearly but most of them particularly that one and it's for her folk songs truly are sort of stories that she cares about and I think that comes across in the way that she performs them and on a weird sort of sense contemporary stories Mm. even if they were written in the 19th century it's a is describing the world as she sees it today. She's also very funny about 10,000 Maniacs covering just as the tide was a-flowing. Yes. Well, obviously they did it without crediting... In fact, it's, it's, her, aunt. it's her aunt who wrote it, who I assume was dead by the time that they... they Not sure. But, but anyway, she's now gets royalties from 10,000 Maniacs, but obviously we didn't at first, that some stiff letters had to be written. You know. <laughs> but it, she, and the, John Todd asks her, well, do you like that version? She said, oh, yeah, of course I liked it. Yeah. It's just like, uh, just like my version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how much money she made from half a song on the 10,000 Maniacs album, but better some than none, right? But she, it's, a, it's great. Yeah. Uh, it, even if you're not you know, fascinated by UK folk rock, it's, it's really worth listening to. I, I, so I, I, I ended up just really liking her. And yeah. she's become a real cult yes. figure now. So when Domino signed her yep. uh, and the Lodestar album came out about three, four years mm-hmm. ago, you know, suddenly she was on the cover of The Wire. Yeah, yeah. And she did, even though she couldn't really sing anymore, right. there were shows at, I think, like the Queen Elizabeth Hall, right. the Festival Hall. And suddenly a new generation, and we've got a bunch of, of our younger writers, mm-hmm. like, like sort of Jude Rogers, yes. Alexis Petridis, the guy, all these people have written about Shirley Collins yep. and they're sort of obsessed by her. Yeah. And, and so she's had this wonderful kind of late, late flowering in her it's, career it's great she deserves it and you know if you get a chance to listen to the No Roses album I think there's only one track we didn't like and that was the Jaunty Fast tune but the ballads on it are really you know yeah. fabulous fabulously played it is it's a, yeah. it's a great record and she's made a lot of great records so shall we talk about everything else that's new for subscribers yeah I mean, well, very briefly, the reader's letters to Record Mirror, 15th April 67. What has happened was Record Mirror, by English inky weekly standards, was the most interested in black music. Yeah. I mean, they, they were the big promoters of soul music. Norman Jopling specifically was, I think, the great writer about black music in the English press in the 60s. Really knew its stuff, you know. Mm. And he'd gone to see the, the, the Stax Roadshow featuring Sam, Dave and Otis Redding and Carla Thomas and so on and so forth. And he was quite scathing about... Uh, Otis about in Otis, particular. About Otis. Then the Atlantic Records manager, Frank Fenter, wrote a stinking letter to the Record Mirror, which we've actually got on the site, saying, you know, he's obviously got cloth ears and so uh, then all the readers wrote in, and uh, passionately, because, like I said, the record mirror was what black music fans bought. So if you're a mod going to the Flamingo, that would be the paper you would buy, mm. and so on and so forth. And so they get, you get all these letters, and actually quite a lot of them are saying, you know what, Norman was right, that actually Otis wasn't great that night, sort of thing, you know. So it's just, it's, it's an interesting snapshot of a moment in time there. It's an interesting thing. I think I'm right in saying that, that this idea that Otis was a bit overrated and a bit of an over-solar, mm-hmm. the whole kind of barking thing that he did. I think it did start here. It may have started with Norman. But by the time I was getting into soul in the early 70s, there was already this slightly kind of received idea mm. 
that actually Otis wasn't the greatest mm. male southern soul singer of them all. And well, um, you, you, you yourself, to some extent, have followed that line. I, I mean, I, 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 I love Otis, mm. but I, I sort of get where those people are yep. coming from, and uh, you know, uh, there are certainly adherents of that sound who would say there were better, yeah. like James Carr yeah. ultimately was a better singer, a more, a more disciplined and controlled but singer. E- equally, there's a degree of tall poppy syndrome. Yes, that Otis had become the big male soul star Absolutely. at that point, um, or outside of some, and probably would have played Woodstock, and probably would have played, probably Woodstock. would have played Woodstock because oh, he did play Monterey, played Monterey, um, yeah, and so. This notion, especially amongst English fans, of authenticity. If he's popular, he therefore becomes less authentic. And it's a sort so of inverted snobbery in a way. Sorry, so, so you, you'll then say, no, Solomon Burke was better and so on and so forth, because he's not as popular. You yeah. know? Um, people so, want to feel like they've got something that other people don't have, so they, yeah. they like things that aren't popular. But yes. there are certainly, I still would argue that there are moments in Otis's era where he's kind of it's almost self-parodic yeah, yeah it's true you know I, I think the major thing I'm actually a huge fan because I think he's fabulous and that the one thing he was turning into particularly was a great songwriter Mm. Uh, and one of the real sad, I mean, uh, yeah. in the same way that Al Green is a great songwriter mm. and that mm. Marvin Gaye was a great songwriter, Within Soul, which isn't a songwriter's medium. Mm. Most R&B artists do cover versions of other people's songs. Mm. Very little R&B in those days, certainly, was, was entirely self-generated. By the time of his death, he was actually writing nearly all of his material. Including, of course, Dock of the Bay. Including, his swan the, song, the, the great, the great Dock of the Bay. Which is just, it is a, an incredible yeah. song, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I'll be sitting when the evening comes Watching the ships roll in and Then I'll watch them roll away again I'm just sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away Okay, moving on. This is a really interesting thing. It's from the Berkeley Barb which is an underground paper um, from December 69. And uh, first of all, I've got to confess, I substantially re-edited this because the way it was presented originally in the paper, it was incoherent because what it is, is they went to talk... See, no-one really talked about the poor guy who died at Altamont, Meredith Hunter. You know, it's all about the angels, all about the Rolling Stones and all that, but Meredith Hunter is black, young, young black kid, isn't it, 17 or 18, he's very young who is stabbed and beaten to death by the Hells Angels, who does pull a gun, you know, you can see it in the movie. But, so what the Barb did was to go to his sister and his, his girlfriend, the girl who is there at the time when he's murdered, and talk to these two people and actually try and make, give this man life after death, which I think is a really good good thing to do. Tell the story. Tell, well, and, and, and tell his yeah, story. Exactly, that's yeah. what I mean, exactly. Tell yeah. side of it. These white, long-haired journalists turn up at the, the sister's house, and mother's been in hospital, but she obviously kind of collapsed, you know. And Gwen, his sister, says, can I ask a question? Certainly. What's the purpose of asking me all these questions? Because there's been a whole hell of a lot printed on the other side, and not very much printed on this side. We wanted to know about this side. Like I said, there are a lot of people who've read a lot of newspapers. We were also at the concert, and we also saw more light on the subject sometimes the more people are able to do. And she says, maybe I'm stupid, but I don't see the purpose in discussing it. It's not going to bring my brother back. And she's very... You can tell she's very cautious about these journalists. She talks about the funeral, how no-one serious came to the funeral. One guy from the San Francisco Chronicle, the one of the Red Cross guys who treated him at Altamont. But no-one, like the promoters of the show, no, it's like, you know, just flushed away. You know? And there's this endless thing of, well, who's going to help him? He's a black guy. White people don't help black people, you know. And then they talk to the, the girlfriend. And she's... This is just like weeks... You know, week, two weeks after the, the, the events. And she's totally shaken. And she talks about it all happening and her being absolutely helpless. And, and so, so I, I, I'm, I found this piece, and it's uncredited. I'd love to know who wrote it. Though I'd have a word with them about their editing. But ha. Uh, but it is, it is, I just love the way it turns the light back on yeah. to this, the victim of this event. And how many times have we heard this story of a young black, often male, yeah. killed 
in questionable circumstances mm. and then not given the coverage that it deserves and should have from the perspective that it should have it, which I, is absolutely. I mean, the whole the, the, the whole coverage of Altamont was more of oh, it's really bad that this has happened to the Stones. Mm. You know, um, and it's the end of the sixties dream, dream and all, all of that. that. Um, uh, uh, Not uh, a thought spared for well, this guy the actual gets, guy yeah. gets flushed down. down Is the there top. actual discussion in the piece about the fact that it's a bunch of white hell's yeah, angels yes. and a black guy? Yeah, yeah. There is, because um, if he'd been white. We, you got to wonder whether he would whether he would but, have been killed. Well, the sister keeps saying, you know, it's just another black boy, black boy dead sort of stuff. You know, yeah. no, the police aren't the police aren't until they they know who these people are. So, so there's, there's a fair amount of bitterness, not so much from the girlfriend who I think is just confused, and she herself is white, so she she's str- struggling with that to some extent. Yeah. But the sister is absolutely kind of clear about about yeah. you know all yeah. of this sort of stuff. Okay. Roy Carr interviewing Tina Turner in 73. When did Tina Turner finally leave her husband? Obviously not by this time. Not by this time, no. no. I mean, I'm thinking mid to late, mid-70s, probably. Maybe even late 70s. And they've been... uh, Certainly their their careers had subsided. They'd had their big hits and so on and so forth. And she talks about how... You know, it's no good writing your own stuff. No one's going to listen to it. That's why we do the cover versions. But also, dear old Roy Carr, the piece is that he's just sitting in his room with her and he's basically drooling. (laughs) Such is the sheer animalistic magnetism, the primitive lustiness, what has been vividly described as the hypnotic impact of the truly cosmic arse of this true fine big leg Roy will be turning in his grave. Tina Turner could just as well be belting out her shopping list because the fact remains that 10,000 males are still going to get their red hot little rocks off. And that's the truth. If you've ever been an eyewitness, then you'll know I kid you not. Just, but, Jasper's looking decidedly uncomfortable. <laughs> I mean, um, but anyway, it's, it's, it's an interesting piece, but I find it interesting, particularly in the context, that their career wasn't doing brilliantly. And I'd imagine that this was exactly the time when she's been beaten up pretty regularly sure. by her husband and sure. so on. So that is, I have to say, that is that problematic writing, isn't it, in yep. this day and age? Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's just all that kind of othering and sort of primitivising. Yep. Yeah. There, there's so many examples of it. It yeah, could be about no. black music it, or, or like naming the German rock bands Krautrock. There's no avoiding it. That's how white male journalists wrote yeah. in those days. And yep. I guess some still do. But it is, it's uncomfortable. I'd say it'd be impossible to write that like that today. You say it's, that, but what often happens is that that attitude is yeah. just coded in in slightly less right. extreme language, yeah. and is and, and it, it still permeates the writing through how it, the subject is approached. For example, is still yeah. but but equally you could say well why if you you know you accept a black writer writing about the sexualization of some of an artist mm, but, yeah. but, but I, don't well, I don't know i don't know that you would i think okay. that one of the dynamics in this is that it's a man writing about a woman and that would be true right. whether it's a black man writing about a woman fair, or yeah. that's, 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 that's a fair woman. enough this next thing's very interesting robin katz talking to breeze mccreef from beggar and co who are one of the first wave of the brit funk movement sort of stuff and there's always a sense that with brit funk is that Reggae had been the identified music of the Afro-Caribbean community here. And actually, for a lot of the younger ones, reggae really didn't mean a thing. And he says here, for me, reggae carries on too much about slavery. It's not talking about the future. When I talk to some Rastafarians, I feel like I'm talking to my grandfather. And that's a really interesting point. And I really, really sense that, that a lot of these young black kids who had been born here, grew up here, found themselves being put, in, especially by the white press, into this box of reggae is your music. When What were they were listening to? They were listening to, like, Michael Jackson and, you know... Of course. It is really interesting as well, in the, not just funk, but also contemporary jazz. Yes. You know, there's a big, big Afro-futurist movement yep. in jazz at the moment, yep. and that's a very exciting yep. one. People like Shabaka Hutchings and Nubai Garcia and all those mm-hmm. sorts of people are very much... You know, Afro-futurism is a big deal yes. right now. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, and... You know, the, 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 the dominant Afro-Caribbean music in terms of the way it's perceived by the media was reggae. Yeah. Bob Marley was a huge star and so on and so forth. So anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a good good piece. Somebody help me out. 
Moving some way forward, Simon Price sees Gene live from Melody Maker. Now, actually, it turns out to be a very overall, very favourable review. He thinks that they're really rather fabulous live. But uh, the opening sort of paragraph and a half or so, he says, I took a wrong turning somewhere along the way. As a 10-something, I was healthily obsessed with Dex's Midnight Runners, The Human League and Tamil Motown. Then I heard The Smiths. But rather than thinking great group, add them to my list, I somehow became persuaded that what I actually liked was alternative guitar rock itself. I even got a job writing about it. Well, I renounce it all! <laughs> I even invented a dismissive acronym for all the six-string, four-square tradsters who soil these pages. J-A-double-G, just another guitar group. Here, here. And he's actually, I mean, I love that because he, his audience were people who loved just another guitar group, you know, the Melody Maker readership, was absolutely adored that sort of stuff. I think a lot of writers from that era would hang their heads in shame now when they look back at the, 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 the indie landfill bands they championed then because absolutely they just nine tenths of them were just rubbish yeah, yeah, you yeah. know landfill yeah. about covers it really yeah absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> that was a great term indie landfill I, I don't remember who invented it but it's great so a year later October 95 E Safer House by Andrew Smith and the Face and this is a he does a report he goes to Amsterdam where people with the, with the, allowed by the government to set up drug testing in clubs, but also a place where dealers can bring their drugs to get them properly tested, yes. precisely tested in a lab, so they know what they're selling to people. It's called the Safe Project House. Yes. This has a lot of resonance these days, because there have been, certainly in England, last five years has been a sharp increase of deaths related to what may or may not be ecstasy. And I liked ecstasy plenty, I, you know, until about three, four years ago when I'd take a pill, let's say an open-air festival, and feel really terrible, and not be able to sleep, but just stare at the top of my, my tent, the roof of my tent for hours on end. And I'd be thinking, was there any ecstasy in this, or was it some really nasty research chem- chemical from some lab in China, you know? So this is 95, so this is way back and it turns out that they're saying in this article that most of what's reaching England is rubbish mm. you know in 95 mm. and the, what's the, your view on this Jasper as someone yeah, that goes a, to festivals there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of shit drugs about basically yeah. and mm. a lot of stuff being sold as stuff that it's not yes. or you just don't know and Actually, festivals are one of the very few places in this country where you can get stuff tested. Yeah. But other than that, clubs have a total blanket no-drug policy, and it, it makes it a lot more dangerous. Yes, they aren't, allowed to have any, they aren't allowed to have any other policy because of the way government treats them. Absolutely, things. absolutely. But it makes the whole thing a lot more yeah. dangerous because there are very few ways of finding out yeah. what you may or may not be taking. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a problem. No, that, that's right. I mean, the, the fact is that the war on drugs has been a persistent failure for decades now. Yeah, disastrous um, failure, absolutely a, a, disastrous. And it's time that in a variety of different ways, over a variety of different drugs, that gov- government found new ways of approaching and looking at things. I mean, Portugal is one really good model. It's a, a very good it, model. Um, There's things like, you know, if you're going to legalise weed, for example, is that you can legalise it, but you tax it, you sell it through off-licences, you tax it according to strength, you don't sell the stuff that's grown under lights because it's known to have missing cannabinoids, which are antipsychotic and so on and so forth. You know, instead of letting people smoke the stuff that's been grown by Vietnamese slave kids in warehouses in Rotherham and things, you know? Mm. I mean, the more dystopian version of this narrative is to say that the war on drugs has been a massive success because it's created a a boom industry, especially in America, in incarceration, lining the pockets of all sorts of insalubrious entities, you know. There's a lot of truth in that too. So anyway, it's it's an interesting piece about a a problem which is still recurring today. Lastly, Barbara Ellen goes to see Marilyn Manson live at the Observer 98. Um, What is yet to be explained by man or satanic force is why Marilyn Manson's music is so risibly bad. This, you see, is the real shock about Marilyn Manson. Considering he's a Satanist, it's ironic that he seems to be on some one-man crusade to prove that actually the devil doesn't have all the best tunes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank um, you, Barbara Ellen. Thank you, Barbara Ellen. So, as ever, yeah. So, so that's, that's, that's your lot. That's my um, lot. I'm now going to ask Jasper to give to give us his highlights. Yeah, well, we're running slightly short on time, so I'll restrict it to one highlight. Mr. Bombastic, we all 
Dramatism, bombastic, romantic, fantastic, lover. And this highlight is live. No, sorry, sorry, no, can't have that. This is a brilliant Evan Parker, please. You can have Evan Parker another week. This week, Shaggy live at the Manchester Arena, Dave Simpson, The Guardian in 2002. This piece is so funny and it's quite short. I could read out the whole piece, but I'll restrict it just a little bit. It starts, if Shaggy wasn't called Shaggy, his whole career might not have happened. Bonky would have been too rude. Rumpy, not suggestive enough. But Shaggy conjures up deep pile carpets and sex on cheap sofas in dodgy bed and breakfasts. This is the naughty yet somehow innocent carry-on vision of sexuality that Shaggy, born Orville Burrell, not Mr. Lover Lover, has tapped into. Indeed, there is just so much sexual energy around that the merchandising store might just as well sell mattresses and condoms and let the crowd get on with it. <laughs> Everybody is gyrating, although not quite as adventurously as the shag monster. Shaggy is an expert in groin thrusting, bottom wiggling, lip curling, and a particular favourite, vibrating his entire body in the manner of a sex toy. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a really, it's a great article, and also it makes the point that Shaggy doesn't take himself seriously. Yeah. Shaggy, the whole thing is with a nod and a wink, and he, he knows... You know, he's just having a lot of fun. He's playing up mm-hmm. this character. He seems, from other interviews, other reports, like a genuinely sort of decent chap, standing in stark contrast to a lot of other sort of reggae dance hall yeah, yeah, people yeah. Who, who are sort of deeply misogynist. No wonder Sting liked him so much. Didn't they do an album yeah. together? Sting and Shaggy. I thought I'd misread that. But do you think but there was some tantric the, thing going on? You guys going to say it's the <laughs> most tantric event in music history. Yeah. <laughs> But, I mean, Shaggy just comes across actually really quite well, and Dave yeah. Simpson has a great time at this gig. Everybody Good. has a fun time, and apparently he's got a really great band as well. Backed by a sublime reggae band, Orville the Pelvis, and his homies gyrate through Lovers Rock, Salsa Clips, and other glorious rogering rhythms, including a newly suggestive <laughs> version of Mungo Jerry's In the Summertime, which was a big hit for Shaggy. And, I, you know, Shaggy's music is silly. It's fun, mm. you know. You guys, you love Shaggy. Yeah, why not? I think he's. I just think he's fun. You know, I, I, it's very hard to kind of get cross about people like Shaggy. <laughs> he's just so good natured. He's having such a good time. I haven't really. He's having such a good time that you, you can't really. You know, he's just enjoying himself. That's why, great. Why, why the fuck not? That's great. That that that's a great highlight to have. Um, thank you for, for reading out Dave Simpson's words. It seems a slightly pathetic way to end the podcast. <laughs> you are trying to end on a sort of more culturally sort of important thing. Than no, shaggy. I don't know. That sums um, up rock and roll to me, really. But you know? it's great. No, it's lovely. From it's Elvis lovely. to Shaggy, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. From from Woodstock to Shaggy. But it's been fun. I've yeah. enjoyed talking about. All, all the various things we've discussed today. Um, Absolutely. So, so, you know, thanks for being here. Well, well the fact that you work here is sort of... You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it helps. You wouldn't have been here anyway. <laughs> it's been really nice just, just having, you know, the old power trio back the together. Put <laughs> <laughs> um, up on the monitors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and we will, of course, be back next week. But, Mark, talk us out with clip number two. Yeah, this, this is, again, it's from this lovely Shirley Collins interview, and she talks about... That she's asked if there's any conflict between like the rockers of the Fairport rockers and the more traditional musicians, and she talks how it has absolutely no conflict at all. That musicians, musicians, they're always interested in each other's playing, you know, and no, basically no conflict whatsoever. And on that happy note, well, we'll see you all next week. Bye. 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 Was there ever any kind of conflict between the Fairport lot and these these other people? No, there... not not a, not a, no, absolutely not a spot. I mean, I think people always, you know, I mean, they're sort of musicians, sort of open-minded and always interested in what other people are doing anyway. And, I mean, it was such a good feeling in the studio on this particular album, you know. I mean, it was done over some some days. And, you know, the the place was full of people and people kept dropping in and staying on and, you know, oh, can I play on that? Yes. And, you know, there's no, absolutely no... I mean, people were just happy to be there. It was a really, it really was a happy, happy Mm. session, group of sessions. And, um, no, I mean, nobody sort of was baffled by what anybody else was doing. I think they were interested in what other people were doing and all this variety of instruments that were coming in and out of the studio and the sort of stuff they were being expected to play on. But, um, no, no. I promised I would marry her.
That was Shirley Collins in conversation with John Tobler in 1991, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. For a list of articles discussed and full show notes, please visit rocksbackpages.com forward slash podcast. You can find thousands of articles as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. Smooth.